1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. This is another episode of Recovery, which is a podcast and a movement, we hope, to help folks who are coming out of either being in ministry, being a reverend, being a volunteer, maybe even want to just transition the way that you do ministry. And so mm-hmm. um, both of us are for former and in, in some ways current folks who work within this sphere, and we both have experienced the transition of work. What else would you say to Clock us in. Um, clock us in. I don't even in. know if that's. I you bring know, us in. That could be our thing. We could say land the plane. Clock gonna, us in. We're, we're clocked gonna, in. We're going to clock into this podcast. Because <laughs> um, when you're Speaking a pastor, work. When you're a pastor. You're always clocked in. So we're going to talk a little bit uh, about pastoring on this podcast and and the good of it, but also the the not so good of it the unique opportunities that one has within and without. Then we've been recording these, we're recording them before we like edit them, put them out in the world. And it has been fascinating to me. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've talked to a couple of people about this project and people are like, yes, this is what is needed. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of fun. Yeah, I've gotten a positive response and just the times I've kind of put it out there. And I think- I think this conversation needs to be had even amongst pastors that aren't leaving ministry, although there are many of those. I think the way ministry is done fundamentally needs to change for pastors for their health and well-being. So last time we were together, we were talking about full disclosure, my favorite subject, which is me. Um, (laughs) But this time uh, we get to talk a little bit about Sarah and her journey um, out of ministry. And hopefully it gives you two sides of a similar coin. Uh, you know, my story is the one like I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm getting fired because ministry stinks. Um, Sarah, at least from my opinion, from the outside, at least it was working really well. And so she's going to talk a little bit about that and why she is in recovery today. Yeah. Why I'm in this recovery room. Uh, yeah. You know, where to even start? I think it's always a little bit of a caveat because I, I recognize that I still am a clergy member. In fact, today I was talking, I'm so tired because I met with a bunch of couples that are getting married because I still have sacramental rights and I'm still a United Methodist clergy member. And in many ways, I still represent the church. But for me, recovery is about leaving, being a local church pastor for a lot of reasons, which we'll dive into, but man, that, that burnout, that burnout is real. So uh, should I start at the very beginning, how I ended up in ministry or what should I start with, Justin? Um, You're driving I, this boat. Yeah, I think maybe a cliff notes just to kind of see. Mm-hmm. So just kind of people paint a picture of where you, sure. kind of where you came from and, and how you got to the point where you're like, I'm done. 
And yeah, give us the cliff notes of that. And then I might, sure. I might jump in. Please do. Yeah. So I grew up in Canada until I was 14. And that's an important part of the story, I think, because I grew up in a culture that in many ways is post-Christian and in a way that America isn't in some ways, particularly because I moved from Ontario, Canada. I moved from Ontario to Mississippi and in Mississippi that like the first question people ask you is what church do you go to? Um, the assumption is, of course, you go to church. It's not the same now. I mean, that was like 20 some odd years ago, but oh gosh, more than that, actually. But that's fine. When you get to a certain age, everything is 10 years everything, ago, 20 years 10, ago. 10 years ago. It wasn't. Yeah. It was. But I I moved and I had grown up in a home where my parents were Christian, but I didn't necessarily grow up in, I would say, like a like a super evangelical understanding of Christianity. I grew up in a small town where there was one youth group and everyone was in it. Didn't matter what denomination you were, because again, remember most people in the community aren't Christian or aren't, you know, the branding doesn't matter. And then I also was part of a church choir, which everyone in my school kind of went to, like, even though we all performed at my church, but we're all from, some of us weren't even from church. It was just sort of a community thing in a way that like, I think kind of painted this picture for me that church community stuff. It's almost like some of the shows you watch that are British and there's like a vicar and the vicar for the community. And in many ways, like we, every year we had a church, not a church, our church would host like the Christmas pageant and everyone in the town was in it. Everyone, you know, like the mailman, like that, like I grew up, the funny thing is last year, Hallmark made a movie that like was filmed in my hometown. Well, the town next to mine, but it like, <laughs> and I was just like, yes. Cause I grew up in a Hallmark movie in some, in some ways, yes. uh, in other ways, not at all, but my pastor was a woman. And so I think that was also formational and I give that as a background. And then I moved to Mississippi and I had worked at a summer camp and that was sort of the first time that I, I kind of was told that I was really good at leadership. And I started realizing that a lot of the rooms I was in, I would start leading. And I, mm-hmm. I think as a kid, that was always something that particularly as a woman, and we could jump in down that for a while, but I, I didn't love that. I didn't love leading, but I knew, but it was like, I, I, I knew it was a natural thing. Mm-hmm. I loved um, being on stage. I loved doing that kind of stuff, but there was just sort of this thing. Like I was, I was the kid everyone wanted <laughs> as yeah. part of their um, project. Right. Cause I was going to make sure it got done. So I moved to Mississippi, never thought ministry was a thing for me. But I was always like the president of the youth group. And, and, so, and that's how they get you. <laughs> uh-huh. I also dated the other president of the youth group. He and I, you know, I had a, like a good Christian relationship when I was, you know, I dated a guy for almost four years when I was like a baby. Like I was a baby. I was 15, I think, when we started dating. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's all formational in there in some ways because I was trying really hard to be an American. And that's a joke that I make with a lot of my friends, but I really was. I mean, the only visions I had of what it meant to be, to fit in were sort of like you belong to a church community and you do all this sort of stuff. And I had gotten involved at the summer camp I grew up going to as Christian. And so I was experiencing the like cool Christian songs and all that. So I was getting the sort of more evangelical side, but I was, again, the church we joined was the United Methodist Church because they allowed women allowed them. They, there were women in ministry as lead pastors. And that was always really important for my mom who had grown up Catholic that our experience included women in leadership. That's cool. Yeah. I, you know, and I come from like a super progressive, cool home. And then I went to college 
And in college, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I actually have a degree in biology and psychology. I thought I wanted to be a vet. Um, I thought I wanted to be an actress. I thought I wanted to be a home designer. Spoiler alert, I still design homes, but I like, I, and I still act. You do a lot of those, all those. Yeah, I I do all of those things. So I ended up kind of like jumping around degrees, but I was there on a leadership. Like one of the scholarships I had was for leadership. Right. So you're, you're hearing all this stuff. So guess what I did? I was part of the Baptist student union and the Wesley foundation. And I was on the leadership board of both, but I still couldn't figure out like who I was meant to be. And I'll never forget. I was really struggling with that. And I was on a beach retreat and this 16 year old boy who was an incredible drummer. We were like talking and he was like, you know, Sarah, you know why we like to talk to you about God? And I was like, no, because I was realizing even though I was in a sorority and I was involved in a lot of sports and I was a biology and psychology major, so I was busy. I was spending almost all of my free time with this youth group that I was an intern for, like hanging out with these kids all the time. And so when Davis said this to me, he said, you know, I think Sarah, you have such diverse interests that like, you're able to like, we want to talk to you about God because you like musically and you and I can relate on that, but like, you can also hang out with the soccer girls or, or the soccer boys. You can throw a football. You like to surf, like all those things that like play music, all the things that I thought made me overly a part of my story too, is I later learned I have ADHD, but I didn't know that then I just had a bunch of hobbies. Like I just, I want to do all things at all times. And that's really hard to narrow down where you're supposed to focus. And so it was the first time I felt like all those diverse interests had purpose and meaning a 16 year old saying that to me. And he goes, I think you should think about like being a pastor. And I had never thought about that for my life before. And then fast forward and a couple of weeks later, I was on a beach retreat with my campus minister and she, she is amazing. I just said, Karen, I think I'm being called into ministry, right? That language that we use. And she was like, oh, thank goodness. All of us have seen it in you, but no, none of us knew how to tell you. And so that I, sounds, I- That sounds very familiar. <laughs> right? And I was like, yeah. ah, what? And I wished other people had told me, but I wasn't sure what that would even look like. You know, and the only people I knew in ministry that were Methodist, because at that time, the Baptist Student Union, like I got in trouble for dancing once, like going out dancing. And so I was like, well, I don't think I'm supposed to fit in with this. The other thing was that I, once I started talking about going to get my master's of divinity, it was really weird. The Baptist student union leadership people like stopped talking to me and made me feel like one girl was like, you can't be a pastor. You're a woman and you're not even married. And I was like, I'm in college. It was like the weirdest (laughs) experience. And I'll admit I belonged to the Baptist student union because they had the hotter worship leaders. And that's something I've said publicly before, but it's true. Like it was during the like season of guys wearing really deep V-necks and I was super into punk rock music and they were all into punk rock too. And so it's like, they were guys I was seeing at shows. So then I'd see them and they were worshiply, you know, all that weird stuff. I will say like Baptist theobrogens, like they run the gamut, but you know, good grooming habits is. Oh, great grooming habits. Is a thing. Great jeans. Like they wore great jeans, also have great jeans, but also don't know what to do with a woman who's getting her master's of divinity. So I ended up getting my master's of divinity or like only applying to one school as sort of a way of like testing God, I think in some ways I was hoping I kind of like wouldn't make it in. That's the story I often tell. I make it in. And then I, my parents, they said our first degree was on them, but the second degree was on us. And so I said, well, I can't afford it. And then they contacted me, interviewed me and gave me a 75% scholarship. So I ended up going wow. to Duke. 
And Duke Divinity School was really hard to get into at the time. They've since expanded their building so they can have more students, but they still are a very well accredited uh, Masters of Divinity program. I had zero background, zero. I was like legally blonde. I was a sorority girl walking. (laughs) I mean, I was, I was walking in, like, I thought it was going to be a giant Bible study. I was a super nerd, but I wasn't nerd in that world, right? Like I had the highest GPA for biology. I honestly felt like legally blonde when I walked in there because nobody wanted to study with me. I went to the University of Southern Mississippi for undergrad. A lot of them went to like Harvard and Princeton, like, and there mm-hmm. I was just like making it um, happen. So that's kind of how I started. But the whole time, if you read my journals, which don't read my journals, Justin, but if you oh, read sorry. my journals, I was hoping I could get the PDF. Yes. Oh, what if I did have that? Uh, no, if, if one were to read my journals the whole time I was in grad school, I was trying to figure out what else to do. Mm-hmm. I just didn't feel called to be a lead pastor. I didn't even think I would be a good preacher. And it wasn't until I preached my last year of grad school and the preaching professor, an amazing black man was like, Sarah, you know, you preach like a black man. Right. And <laughs> at the time had no idea what he meant by that. He's like, your power, your ability, like the way you hold an audience, you should, you know, and I was like, this was not what I thought I would want to do about ministry. Cause what I envisioned for my life was that I would hang out with students for the rest of my life. Cause that's, I love doing it. And I wanted to spend all my time creating spaces for these students because I did have this like real connection, having had eating disorders in my past, like all this sort of stuff that kind of connected to students in different ways. And so I ended up getting my first job was as a youth and college pastor in California with the Methodist church. I wasn't uh, pursuing ordination. I was just going to live in California for three years and I was going to start auditioning for TV shows. Obviously I was going to be discovered. And then after that, I would just like have my cool background story that I worked in youth and campus ministry. Meanwhile, I ended up because I was young and dumb. They asked me to do my own worship service because a lot of people were going to our college group that were like not college age because they liked my preaching and they liked the worship service. So out of that, the bishop then came and asked um, if I would consider getting my local pastor license. And when I went in to do that, they said, why don't you just get ordained? And I said, huh. They're like, Sarah, you have all the accreditation. Like you should start the ordination process. And the time I was, I know. And that's like, it might not mean anything to anyone else, but like Methodists, it takes like two years for us to get ordained. It's a lot. lot. It's like grading a thesis. It's like getting your doctorate. At the time I was seriously dating a guy, we were looking at how we were going to do life together. And he was like, you're not doing this alone. I'll go with you through this process. He ended up getting married the day I got ordained, a funny and painful story, not to me, to someone else. And there was just this like weird thing where in some ways I feel like I fell into it. So they offered Mm -hmm. me a position as a campus pastor where I could do the stuff I liked and not the stuff I didn't like. So I didn't like finances. I, I didn't like figuring out the structures. I hated all of that, but I loved coming up with creative ways to do preaching. In fact, yesterday I was talking to someone about all the Christmas services I came up with. Like I loved it. So I say all that to say, then when the challenge came up for me to relaunch a sign church in like, it had a really cool building and I had evaluated it because I was part of the district planning and strategy committee. Because remember that point where I said, like, I end up leading things, whether I want to or not, I was invited to be on that committee. And I ended up saying, Oh, I'll go and evaluate this church. Loved it. And the funny thing is my mom had always said, cause I'd always lived in that city. My mom had always said, I think that's your church. So I flipped hmm. that church 
And it was the hardest five years of my life. It took everything. And when I think back on some of the trauma of a parachute drop, you know, is what they call it. They, I mean, technically it was a new start, but it was a restart. So I still had all the problems of the old church, all the baggage Mm -hmm. of that stuff, but they were beautiful and wonderful people, like wonderful people, but there was real pain when you're pastoring people through the change of their community, that pain, you know, there were people at my um, co-working space that used to say, they don't hate you, Sarah, they hate change. So there was that. And then our community was growing really quickly. And, um, but we weren't getting a lot of leadership. The beginning of the end, I remember sitting with the heads of new ministries for my denomination and I'm crying and I'm saying, I can't do this anymore. Like I'm so burnt out. I don't have any creative ideas. I'm not who I was when I started this. And they said, yeah, well, you've created like a mushroom cloud. You grew the church too big and you didn't have enough leaders. And I said, when was I supposed to create leaders? Because you gave me metrics that I had to meet that the church would grow within a certain amount or we wouldn't get our grant. So I'm not sure when I was supposed to just be pouring into my leaders. I also have zero staff. Like it was like, and I ended up like creating staff and working, but I had to be so creative for five years and still preach. And I was going through my own kind of like, God, I don't know where you are in the pain of a couple really difficult ending relationships. And, you know, part of me was like, but I played by the good Christian girl rules. How did I end up here? You know, I was a leader and I found out at one point that the guy I was going to get, you know, engaged to the reason he left was that he didn't want to be married to a pastor, like all this stuff that was so painful and tied into doing this work on your own. And I am so grateful for the people in my community, but I knew In that meeting, when they looked at me and said, you grew this mushroom cloud too big, I was like, I can't do this anymore, but I was doing it out of obligation. And I no longer had that connection that I thought I had to purpose to feeling like, you know, I I felt inauthentic in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I was speaking at events was the other piece too. So I was traveling all over the country as well as Canada, speaking at events. And I flipping love that. I love crafting a message. I love pumping up a crowd, right? The little actress in me, but I also just loved giving people stuff to make their lives better in a moment and then not having to be the one to do it. And I was being guilted about it. So the, one of the things that was so hard is I would go to meetings with other pastors and I would hear about the things that was making them filled with joy. And when I tell you, I was like, I don't care about that stuff. And I felt, I just would squish it all the time. And, and we were required to be part of these covenant groups. And so I was like in these meetings and just feeling like we are not even the same kind of people and our community was growing and it, I just, it grew into this really cool community. And and most people would say, I never wanted to do church again, but I'll do this. Right. But then the flip side of that is you got a bunch of people who are traumatized in a church building and there's a bunch of triggers that you don't know you're going to step on. And I lost my humanity. I, I became, I realized For so many people, I became like a substitute for the divine or the church that had hurt them, or, you know, either they thought I I was going to be the one to make them feel better about it. And and we step into that, right? Like as a pastoral personality Mm -hmm. in some ways, and it's a weird, like reverse narcissism, like you think everything is your fault. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I remember um, a guy I was dating one time saying to me, like, you do know you're actually not Jesus, right? It's hard when everyone wants you to be Jesus. 
Correct. Like that is, it, it is a strange, and it, I would say a rubric of health for a lot of pastors is that you don't want it because, or that you are made uncomfortable by it. Yes. Because when you start being like, yeah, oh yeah, I am that thing for you. That that's a problem. I, yeah. Cause I think the role of pastor is, it is so vacant and a lot of in it, it, people can just feel what they want and you hey, can be, that's a great way of putting it. You can become what people need, but sometimes that's awful. Sometimes it's like yeah. they need somebody to hate or they need someone to be everything for them. I, I remember as a youth pastor, I would spend one minute with a kid that's in crisis here. And then I would spend another minute with a kid that's like, thinks I'm God's gift to everything. And then like 10, 12 PM, I'm getting a call from a kid that's like wanting to take their life. And like, and then eventually that becomes normal. Yeah. (laughs) That you're like, oh, sorry, you know, wife and children or significant others, roommates, or just like personal hygiene, even like, sorry, I need to put you on hold because I need to gather a posse of people to find a kid that might be on the verge of taking their life. And that, that that's normal. That's quote unquote normal. So that does something to your body. And it yeah. sounds like that's, you were definitely experiencing that. I, I did want to take a step back though, and just explore a synergy or two, because mm-hmm. like when I was on the cusp of becoming a pastor, graduating, I'm Googling schools for how to become a stuntman. And yes, I just love, I don't care if this show does well, or if we like, I just love like learning about the onion that is just a a stuntman. Yeah. I wanted to be a stuntman. I still kind of do. There's a part Mm -hmm. of me like. Because Keanu Reeves will give you a Rolex. Maybe, maybe (laughs) that's, that's, that's it. The rubric is going to get Keanu Reeves to give me a Rolex. But I do find it funny that you are, that you are pushing against being a pastor this whole time, cultivating all these interests, cultivating these opportunities. And I, I definitely found myself doing the same things like these random interests that don't make any sense. Like given what I was studying for, but still I'm pushing against that. And that being an asset in certain points, But do you think that that was maybe a subconscious desire to get out? Was that just ADHD? Like, and it's hard to parse that, but what do you think that was in you that just kept pushing you outside of this ministry thing? I think I, I, as I look back on it, remember I said there was a pastor that I just like really, my campus pastor. So she was amazing. And I saw how lonely her life was. And she eventually did get married and has a ton of kids. But I remember her saying, your biggest fear is that you're going to be me, isn't it? Hmm. And I had a pretty healthy social life when I was in college. And I was so afraid of exactly what happened, which is that I did become a weird unicorn, right? Which in some ways when you're like, you know, you want to be special, but I didn't want to be away from connection. And I think my biggest fear was that I would not connect with people and that I wouldn't be able to do the creative stuff that I love so much. And I knew, I knew even then that being on a pedestal of religiosity wasn't for me because I can perform really well. For a while I was pretending to be a pastor and, and that's like the imposter syndrome, right? Where I like felt like I was like, okay, this is what Sarah would do if Sarah was a pastor. And it like, 
And I've always been very authentic. And I've always, I hope my goal is always to be me in every situation because Mm -hmm. I recognize in me, if you do anything with the Enneagram, I'm in Enneagram three, like we know how to perform and we know how to be what the person in front of us needs Mm -hmm. or wants. But that means we don't necessarily know who we are. And I think in a weird way, I was guarding myself against what ended up becoming my reality, which is my gosh, did my central nervous system kind of lose it? Because not only was I like growing a community, I was staying up to like midnight, um, buffing floors and rebuilding doors and like fixing bathrooms and asking people to help me all the time. And they would help me when they could. And then sometimes they couldn't. And I had the best volunteers and then I had no volunteers and everybody got burnt out and I was burning people out and they were, you know, and it was just this constant battle to maintain this thing. And I was like going up to events and speaking at events, encouraging pastors, working with people and finding that like, no, that was my jam, right? Like Mm -hmm. figuring out how to flip that church is like the biggest gift that I've ever had in my entire life. That to me will always be a sign that the divine somehow is involved. Cause there were so many people that found this healing experience in that community, but there were also, I had, when I say I had toxic relationships with staff members, I mean, I had, I had guys yell at me. I had like, we're talking, we're talking toxic, but I had to have the monster. I had to have people that would do things. And sometimes these were the only people that would do things. And mm-hmm. so my life, my work life balance just sucked. And I think when you ask that question of, do you think you were like, I looked at art school. I went to art school when I was in grad school. Cause I was like, oh, I'll just be a d- d- designer, which is only funny. Cause I now design, but um, <laughs> yeah, I'm an amateur designer, but I, I think it's that I knew what my future was going to be like, but I did it anyway. And I think it was worth it mm-hmm. for other people. And I'm in a process of figuring out if it was worth it for me because mm-hmm. I've had more than one therapist suggest to me that I have PTSD And some of the stories I still haven't unpacked because there is pastor parishioner, you know, uh, privilege. And there's so much stuff that people didn't know I was carrying around. Right. Yeah. People, there was one guy who's, who volunteered at our church the last year I was there. And he said, Sarah, he would help me with building stuff. I didn't realize what your days look like. He's like, you are here fixing things. Like we're talking, putting up backsplashes, uh, cleaning after weddings, like you're doing that. And then you were teaching our community and then people are in crisis and they're calling you and then you're dealing with financial stuff. And then everyone calls you after they're done work because like, that's when they can volunteer. Mm -hmm. So, but then also people want to be able to reach you during business hours. He's like, I didn't realize. And I don't think I realized, I think my body in some ways, because of a lot of things was in fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And, and I think I just maintained that for so long that I, I knew the sign for, you know, for me was, I knew I wasn't caring about people in the way that I'd gotten in to do. Like I, I was more frustrated with people's difficulties. Like I was almost like, yeah, of course I'll come to that thing that you need me to come to. Of course I'll go to dinner at your house. Uh, yeah, no, of course I'll do that instead of doing what I was going to do with my life this weekend. 
yeah, absolutely. Like I'm not dating, but I might as well take the whole weekend to do craft fairs at the church. You know what I mean? And I had, you know, so many people that were like, they didn't understand like, well, when are you living your life? It's like, I can't because this is all that it is. And yeah. And, and when you do start living your life, many times people are like, well, yeah, what are they doing? Like, what are they doing all day? Yeah. I remember I got into, into CrossFit for a while there, uh, which it's the third episode. And I think it's the first time I mentioned CrossFit. So that's, uh, it should be recognized. I feel good. I was, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I, I, maybe I've mentioned it every episode and I don't remember, <laughs> but I, I, I got really into it. Like, and I got, you know, trained, I was coaching mostly because it was just kind of like fun. And, you know, they're like, you're good in front of people. Like, like, well, yeah, like I do this for a living, like coaching your hour long class is not a problem. Yeah. Cause I don't have to develop this. I'm just doing the thing you're telling me to do. Yeah. I literally show up. I read what's on the board. I tell people this is, this is like simple for me. Like it, it, I would say effortless. And, and that was, but I do think that there were people, I actually know there was a senior pastor that kind of confronted me on it and was like, you know, you're, you're always doing this CrossFit thing. You're always like, you're more excited about that than you are the church. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcast, And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. And I'm like, one, that's objectively not true. I basically live here. But two, like, why are you suddenly jealous of me having interests beyond this? And, and that followed me too, even in other ministry positions as well. There was always this like unspoken, you do things outside of church for fun. Like that's not allowed. You're here for us. And it's not, it's never said quite like that, mm-hmm. but it, you just, you feel like you can't and, or you feel guilty or you feel. I just realized every one of my friendships too, was a bit of a, like, I didn't, I would show up. And I would be honest and I would be real and I would talk about in, in friendships. And then I would immediately feel like, oh shit, they go to my church. Like I can't do that. And then I Mm -hmm. would backtrack or feel guilty about it. Or, you know, particularly after going through pretty substantial breakups and I realized I wasn't talking about the people like after I went through one really rough one and I had a, a mentor pastor saying to me, you know, you're in pain and people know you're in pain. You need to work on hiding that because nobody's going to trust a pastor who's in pain. Mm -hmm. And so I learned how to cry my entire way to the church and then buy mascara and go in and act like everything was fine because that's what people needed. But I was putting my entire pain. I mean, everyone knew at the time Mm -hmm. that I was about to get engaged because it was one of those things where I had to put them on my healthcare and all that sort of stuff. Right. And we were introduced as the young, cute couple or whatever. And then he disappeared. And then everyone found out on Facebook that he was engaged to someone else and got married really quick. And that was very hard. I mean, for me and for them, 
but I was concerned about how they were dealing with my pain. And I learned then not to talk about my relationships. And so there are a lot of people that like think I'm a nun because I I had hidden relationships for years and not because there was anything shameful about them. We were living very like, but because it was such a big deal for me to date or such a big deal for me to be a normal human. Mm -hmm. And I think I actually started to internalize that where like having anything outside of the church was not okay or to be hidden. And I think I learned how to not even know what I wanted or needed because I didn't know how to self-differentiate. I just listened to a fantastic podcast on the 10% happier podcast with a woman who realized that she had lived all of her life in community. Her family was part of, I believe, a Mennonite community. And so she grew up in that. And then she became a Buddhist nun and she walked away at 40 because she said, I need to learn how to differentiate. I need to know the pain of being an individual. And I think for so many of us, we have not only been considering our primary relationships, but we've also been considering like a community that's not just work in, in all the actions we take. And we still may take the action, but we have people judging us at a level that no one else judges anyone who starts cross. Well, I do because of kipping's bad for your shoulders, but that's a whole nother thing. I just think there's a level of people feel very comfortable telling you how they feel about everything that you do. And it's so hard to explain to anyone who isn't in this profession or who doesn't know anyone intimately who is in this profession. Yeah. So I lived in a parsonage for a while and we had a, you know, I, we didn't have a baby, my spouse had a baby and we had people commenting like, Hey, you're closing your blinds a lot more lately. And I was like, okay, that's the creepiest thing someone could say, because one, like when our blinds weren't closed, you were aware and checking us out. Like, and now you're like disappointed that I'm not letting you be a voyeur in my life because our baby needs less, you know, because we're trying to let them sleep. I had a staff member who did community like outreach stuff. And we were trying to figure out where to do our small group meetings. And he said, like our, our first timer gatherings. And he said, well, we should have them at your house. And I said, well, here's the difference between me and you. I'm a single woman who lives alone. I don't want people from the church knowing where I live. And at that point, I'd already been stalked twice. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It's the idea of like, no, you cannot, like you wouldn't tell your boss, hey, we're going to have a party at your house. Like it's just the weirdest thing to like think you can be part of that part of someone's life and in to make comment on it. And then honestly, a lot of people, and I wish I could have had people over because the new pastor who took over after me has people at his house all the time, but guess what? He's a married dude and it is safer for him to have new people at his house than it is for me, someone who has been inappropriately contacted. And, and, and the guy never got it. He never got it. When I said to him, I'm not comfortable with people being at my home. And I'm not comfortable with people knowing my cell phone number. He's like, well, that's not, that's not okay. How are you going to be a pastor if people don't know your cell phone number? Yeah. It's all these unspoken understandings that, that apply to you, regardless of your gender, your marital status, your, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. you you will be what I would need you to be at when I need you to be it. And so, and so you're experiencing all of this. And for many pastors, they experience that and they're nodding their head along with your story. And they're like, Yep. And so that's just ministry and you keep going, but you rebellious Sarah, (laughs) which is so funny. 
I've decided to take a step away. And so like, like what was that moment of transitioning or that moment where you yeah. said like enough's enough and, yeah. and now how, how do you get from where you were to where you're at now? Now I feel like I should pause and get wine. I'm going to get more wine to tell this part. That's Hold fine. On. You can do that. I will. Hold on. I don't always, uh, have to have wine to tell painful stories. It's not that it's painful, but it is in no weird way, right? Well, like you should totally have wine whenever you're telling a story. It's just right. Stories go better with wine for sure. I mm-hmm. I says the guy that drinking herbal tea like a old dad. So I was uh I was aware, I think, that I was having more fun when I was out speaking in events. I was having more fun when I was helping pastors one-on-one. I was like loving helping other pastors think through their sermons than, than I was like doing pastoral care and the things that my, my friends really care about and really love in their position. And I can kind of remember the moment I was walking around my neighborhood and I was on the phone with um, actually Jen Hatmaker, who used to be a pastor as well. And she was like, I think you're close to being done. And I was like, I don't know. I mean, what? Yeah. And I, I mean, I've been thinking about it for years and my closest friends all knew they're like, Sarah, you're just doing this because you love that community so much. And I do, I still to this day, love them so much. And I loved them to the point where I didn't want to hurt them. And by that, I knew that if I kept going at the pace I was going, I was going to be less of me. And I knew that my job at that church was to flip the building so that they could use it for things other than just church. And so that it would be a space that was like really well-known in the community. I'd made great community outreach, but I realized I was at the top of my game in the local church. Like that was, I didn't want to go to any other church. And in my denomination, they move us. And I was like, I love this community. I don't want to go anywhere else. I'm not shooting for a bigger church. I'm not whatever. I don't want to be a district superintendent. I don't want to be a bishop. So what am I doing? What am I doing? And it was scary as hell. It was scary as hell because I've only ever done church work other than like side gigs that I've always had. Cause I'm always playing around doing something. I've only ever done church work. And I had that rebellious, I guess you moment you would call it. Um, I let everyone know. I was like my, my bosses or whatever. I was like, Hey, like we got to start thinking about who's coming in to replace me. And they never would. So how they decided to deal with it is to gaslight me <laughs> like real pros. Yeah. One of them wasn't even reading my email when I wrote one of the most painful emails I've ever written, which was, I am not seeking reappointment, which means I don't want to be posted here. It was the most pain. I mean, I'm talking and it was in November. I sent it in. I cried and no one reached out to me. No one said, you know, and and that sounds really narcissistic. Like I needed someone to reach out to me. But when, when I tell you I'd worked so hard and I given all of me and all I ever heard was when I was failing, when we missed a deadline, when things weren't exactly as they were supposed to be. And then for me to say to them, I can no longer do this. And there be no response. And I, and that was the moment that I knew I'd made the right choice because I said, wow, you have been working so hard to try to do this thing for people and please people that don't, they don't, they, they like you, 
they don't care. They'll find someone else like, mm-hmm. and that's good. Like, that's a great thing. And I knew that my church deserved somebody. And I'm not saying that like shitty, you know, I knew that my church de- deserved somebody who could flip it, like yeah. who could move it beyond where I got it. So I already flipped it. Now let's like, and, and when I use the term flip it, it sounds very flippant. But what I mean by that is like, it was a, a community of 17, mostly elderly people. And by the time I left, we were worshiping like a hundred and then COVID hit and we were worshiping a lot more online. And it was just, it was, it was growing and, and it has grown and we we're doing amazing, crazy things in the community. I just thought that they did a Halloween thing the other night and had like 500 people. It's Great. insane for a little like cool church in the middle of the city. It's a cool, cool community. And I knew I couldn't do it anymore. And I remember the last Christmas that I did there. I knew and my congregation didn't know mm-hmm. because I had written that thing in November because they require us every year to say whether we want to stay or not. And I struggled. I struggled. I had come up with different models. I had talked to all these bosses and begged them. I said, what if I only did, you know, what if I work half time while I build my business on the side? What if I work 75% in, while I build a business on the side? And they never helped me do those things. They never helped me figure out what that would look like financially or, or do any of that. And so I was like, I think I have to make it real for them that I'm not, this isn't my church. Um, it's our church. We built this thing together and these people are doing well enough that I can leave. So I just saw today that the pastor is going through, I'm not sure what he's going through. I do need to text him and find out, but, and the church sent him this like big gift basket. And I thought that's a thing, right? They finally have their community now. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, so cool. And he's like so happy there. Did I choose him as the person to follow me? No, mm-hmm. that was painful too. Cause that was the other thing. And again, it sounds really narcissistic, but when you flip something and you put your entire being into it yeah. and put a lot of your dreams on hold so that you could do that, you want it's it to hard be, when, you want it to be good. Like you want it to be great be, and you yeah. want it to keep going after you. The guy they have is wonderful. I'm so glad it's him. So, you know, yeah, my story isn't the same, except that I have to figure out who I am outside of being Pastor Sarah. And one of the guys at our church, so part of our story is that my community was a lot of people who were deconstructed or people who had been really like successful pastors ended up in our church community. And one day, one of these guys who is actually a a coach for pastors, amazing guy, he's a PhD in counseling, like such a cool dude. He looked at me and he's like, who, who is Sarah? I was like, Oh, what do you mean? I'm blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, no, no. I mean, when you're not pastor Sarah, who's Sarah. And the dude had no idea. I mean, I'm not a crier. I've worked, you know, I just started bawling and I said, I don't know who she is, but she's really lonely. And he was like, Oh, okay. We've touched something there. And I was like, she is so lonely. And she's just, I mean, cause I couldn't be honest with people. Everything was at a risk of making the project die. I, I couldn't like, I don't know how to explain it. When you flip a business, at least you can go home. I could never go home from it. I could never get away from it. And then put in like my relationship to God, which started getting, you know, my friend passed away and that was very painful for me. And it was a very public, you know, all that happened. And again, through another really shitty breakup. And I was just like, I, I can't carry all this and carry that. And so I remember recognizing that I am risk averse. And so after my friend passed away, my friend's husband 
actually said to me, you're risk averse, Sarah. And I said, no, I'm not. And then I thought, yes, I am. And I knew that I had to like pull the plug completely. There was going to be no going to 50%. There was going to be no going to 75%. I had to like pull the whole goddamn thing (laughs) apart so that I could figure out who non-pastor Sarah is. And it's been the most painful process. It's still lonely. It's still hard. And that's partly why I want to do this project is Mm because I don't want people to feel lonely in this. I don't, you know, I feel like in some ways I'm learning how to people learning how to be a person at 41. And that's the weirdest thing. Like I'm learning how not to lead with my identity as a job. You know, I'm learning how to, yeah, there's just so much there, but yeah, that's how I knew. That's, that's really, that's great, Sarah. I think, yeah, I understand that impulse to like, I'm not going to get out. So I have to just, I have to destroy this thing. Um, Like, yeah, because I I was in youth ministry my like I said last week my last position which now that I think about it I think it was because like during the summers like the kids are active during like normal work hours I think that's, yeah like that's such a huge thing because when you're with adults like your job starts at five p.m. sometimes but yeah I found that it's like okay I love these students and like I'm gonna try to make a plan to like transition them well. And then I have to get out, but like, how do I do that? And I, I, I think I had to be fired because I would have, I would have continued with so many unhealthy things and so much hiding and so much. Yeah. Like that, 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 that's a cycle you get into. My body started failing, which was Mm -hmm. really hard. I had a doctor say to me, like, and I've always been like, I'm like you, maybe that is our ADHD, but I'm, I've always been really physically active and I, like right now I have plantar fasciitis, but when all of this was going down, I had plantar fasciitis again. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I had it actually. I also had fibroids on my, like in my uterus. I mean, just crazy stuff. And the doctors were all saying your stress levels, something like you've got to change your life. And I kept telling myself it's because I don't know how to handle my life. Well, not that maybe the expectations are too much. Yes. So I try to change my yeah. expectations about it, but then from on high, I was hearing you're not meeting the metrics, but you're meeting the metrics too much. You're not, there was never a clear, what does success look like? Yep. So you always feel like you're failing. Always. And and that was the other thing. Mm-hmm. When I tell you, I had a sign during uh, COVID. I made a sign that I put up in my house that says it is enough. And the truth was I had to look at it every night because every day I thought I was failing. And I just couldn't have one more person expect something of me because I was going to try to meet that need. And I still, I I still try to do that now. I I see it in myself, you know, I, and I'm, I've hurt some people, I think, as I've been trying to figure out the boundaries around friendships in some ways, because I'm learning how to not be the one who's constantly available. And it's painful for me. Honestly, it's lonely, right? Like when you're used to being surrounded by other people's needs and you have to sit with yourself, it is real hard. You know, I have to, there's a lot of self-talk, like a a lot of self-talk of like, you're okay. It's okay. You know, it's enough. You don't have to explain yourself to people. You don't have to like not explaining my time anymore is very interesting when you have had a career for 16 years where you felt like you needed to explain what you're doing with your time all the time, you know, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard horse to get off of. 
but it also was running in the wrong direction for me. Yeah. I found that even in my work, I've worked in the corporate world and, you know, my boss will be like, you know, we'll have like a one-on-one or something. He'll check in and I'll immediately begin to like, I'm doing this and this and this and this and this, like, and he, and almost like, he's like, I, I need like, cool. the bullet, I need the bullet points <laughs> of what you need from me so that we can end this meeting. I mean, he's actually, he's a, he's a wonderful person. I, I'm glad I, he's my boss, but it, but it like, yeah, that, like that impulse to like, I want, I need to justify my existence and my employment for you you know, right now. And just, yeah, I didn't realize I was doing that. And then you like said that it's like, that's totally like, you feel that need to justify every moment of your day because you don't get days for yourself. And, or when you do, you're, you're being a bad, like you feel that like bad. You are being a bad, <laughs> you're being a bad, a bad, whatever. Yeah. So I, I, I think that the way the ministry is structured, it is hard to be a human, a good human. And I, present human. It's hard to be a yeah. present human. Yeah. Yeah. Good and bad. Maybe I shouldn't say that, but yeah, be, be, yeah. The, the, a present relaxed human, the type of human that you probably need to be in order to be a good pastor or be as be what people are ex- actually expecting you to be and not what maybe they've been told they expect to be or you mm-hmm. should be. And I think to be the kind of human that uh, has longevity and has things to say and things to experience. I think sometimes that requires stepping back. And so I just want to say like, it, I know it's hard, uh, but I'm definitely, I think, yeah, definitely. I'm proud of you. And I'm like, your story is is great. And I, I hope that's encouraging to people Thanks. to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy in a weird, I'm a happier. It's weird. I, I love mm-hmm. people so much and I'm still in contact my situation is unique in that, like, I recognize mm-hmm. that I could go out and just like burn the whole damn thing down and do something. And I, w- I don't know what I would have done. I wouldn't have done any having an affair. I wasn't married. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing I could have done, but I, I, I was afraid of hurting people because I was so not me. I wasn't in touch with me, my needs, my wants. I, I was just right. I was trying to be all things to all people. And I was doing podcasts on the side and doing all this stuff just stuff, 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 stuff. And I loved that when I said I was stepping away, someone wrote me, like everyone in the room, all my leaders were quiet, you know, cause I was the one who made this thing. Right. And then one of them piped up and said, we're not quiet. Cause we're mad. We're quiet. Cause we're sad and we're quiet because we're watching you do what you've always done. And that's lead us well. And you stepping away is leading us well because you are aware that you're burnt out and we don't get to do that much in American culture. And I knew in some ways too, when I talked to my parents, my parents are like my best friends in the world and they've had very traditional career paths. My dad's a doctor, loves being a doctor. You know, I think that was hard too. I grew up with someone who embodies his job. Like my dad's Dr. Bob and he just is every part of his life is, but he loves it. Right. And so when I told them I was stepping away, my parents, their reaction was very surprising to me. They're very practical people. They normally would be like, so what are you going to go do? And my dad said, yeah, you need to take some time. And if you need your healthcare paid for, we'll, we'll, we'll help you with that. And that's not something my parents are awesome, but they've never been, let's throw money at it. And so I had this real sense that I'm being invited into something. And that's kind of what I want to suggest to all of our listeners is if anything, 
I'm learning to see my life as an invitation to surrender, to surrender to my ego of, I can flip a church and maintain. It feels really good for the mayor to call me all the time. It feels really good. You know, it feels good to be on like the only reason they could open things for COVID because I was one of the pastoral voices for that. It feels good to do all that. But is that really what the invitation is? And no, the invitation is just constantly surrender to the belief in whether you call it the universe or the divine that there is, and even each other in our connection, like what would it look like for me to give up my position and still think I matter? I think, you know, your connection to Sarah yeah. is maybe the most important thing. And I think we lose sight of that because our connection to God or our community yeah. or our job is that that becomes more important. But I, I, I think that. I think our connection to God is our connection to ourselves. Yeah, it's you can't really divorce the two. Um, even for our Calvinist friends that are listening, mm-hmm. that was a John Calvin quote. So, um, yeah, I, I think we lose that knowledge of ourselves because um, theology and the position doesn't let you do that. And so, yeah, connecting with yourself, however that looks, whether you're an atheist and just see that as a, as you know, I'm I'm healing my body, or whether you still very much believe in the divine. I think taking those moments back are are important, um, and healing. I've had some really sacred, holy moments and I hadn't for a long time. I mean, I've had some big coincidences that I would have called holy, but I'm talking like where, like uh, when I was in a small town in England, a couple of weeks ago, I wanted to go into the chapel. I felt compelled. Mm-hmm. I felt like, you know, cause every town has those big, huge cathedrals that are so pretty. And I thought, oh, that's fascinating why do you want to go in there? And I felt at home. I stood in the pulpit and that felt right. And maybe pastor Sarah isn't dead. She just needs to figure out the Sarah part. She's taking a little nap, a much needed nap. She's taking a nap because my connection to God isn't what it was or what I thought it was. Right. Like I, I, I'm a, in some ways, a functional agnostic (laughs) and I, that I, I love the Jesus story. And there are times when every now and then Jesus and I kind of have a moment, but in general, I'm like, I don't know, you know, and it's, and I, that was not something that you can't really sell the program if you're not on it. Absolutely. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's yeah. It, it's, it's hard to sell the program, but I think, you know, the, the program you're on now is, you know, I think that's the real deal. Yeah. And it's really interesting because I'm in school to coach and I'm in a Christian school, I, so to be a coach, which is like uh, one-on-one helping people like a life coach kind of thing, but I'm going through like the hardest program, the like gold standard of coaching is called ICF and I'm doing it at a Christian mm-hmm. school. And so they're like, so normally you're being trained to work with executives. I'm being trained to work with pastors. And it is the funniest thing to me that every now and then they say stuff that like, um, I know everyone else in the room agrees with it. And I'm just like, and they're like, but we have the Holy spirit. And I'm like, do we like, just like, yeah. I'm like maybe, maybe we still need to pay attention to what the book says here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I just have this whole, like really interesting relationship to who I was and who I'm going to be. And I think that's why this really fun in, to work on this project while I'm in the midst and kind of a weird way, like I'm the Guinea pig, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm the one who's learning how to trust that I could take a jump and the divine will catch me. And I was talking to my parents about that tonight because I had this incredible conversation. The one I was telling you about earlier, where like getting to 
be available for things I never was available for before opportunities that I never was available for before, but I'm waking up at four in the morning with anxiety about what the hell did I do as a, as a solo person who has to pay all their bills on their own. Right. And I think I've never felt more lonely, but I've also never felt more connected. And I know that's the weirdest thing to say, but I think I'm learning how to be alone with myself and I don't know what's going to come out of this. And the, the three in me and the pastor part of me wants to like, well, this is going to be a cool sermon series one day, uh, or this is going to be a cool book one day, but instead I'm just trying to be present to it. And every time I try, every time I like try to make it into something, cause that's like my deal, right? Like I was doing TikToks almost every day from inside my Airstream. And I was like, why are you doing that? Like, yeah, it's fun. And I love it. And I'd love for people, but is that like your need to perform? Like, why aren't you just here? So I'm trying to learn how to just be here. You don't have to share it with anyone. When you're out of ministry and you realize I can just have this experience and have it. Like, yeah, I totally get the, when you are watch, watching my kid walk for the first time, think, you know, like there's the, the moment, but then there's the, how can I use this? Right. You know? And, and, or any significant experience, like seeing this amazing sunset on vacation and you're like, mm, yeah, this, this, this will be gold someday. Well, and that's like social media makes us do that yeah, as true. well. Yeah, true. So then you add in the, I mean, I, I, I recognize I have a large platform on that. I recognize that and I understand. And I love, I love that in many ways. Cause this is a chance for me to preach. Sometimes my captions are pretty preachy, but it's also, how can I just put it away for a little while. And I feel like I'm learning so much about surrendering and letting go. And I'm excited about, you know, us introducing hopefully the world to other people who have figured out, like, this is what it looks like to be you. Yep. So thanks for hearing my story. I feel it's like one of those things where I'm like, it's a lot of self-sharing and there's so much more to the story. I'm sure I'll wake up in the middle of the night and be like, I should have told this part. Mm -hmm. Cause there are, there's so many profound moments and mm-hmm. I didn't walk away many people. It felt quick. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, it was about two years. And I'm currently coaching several pastors who are in the process of letting go. Mm-hmm. And they keep saying, well, I just wish I could be like you and just have walked away. And I said, it took me years, years. It took me years to walk away. Yep. And I think that was the healthiest way for me mm-hmm. and for my community. Yep. That's my journey for some people. I think you have to leave right when you know you need to leave. So thanks for joining us, friends, and for hearing our stories. It was a good time. We'll uh, we'll see you around. We're going to come up with a closing. Yeah, we will. It'll be in this area somewhere. Somewhere. But we're like, you know, I've said it before. We're good at we're good at middles. The beginning and the end. Eh, we'll figure it out. Yeah. But middles, <laughs> middles we're good at. Middles. Middles we're good at. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of Rev Covery. And also thank you so much for all of your responses we've been getting, whether it's sending us a DM through Instagram or Twitter or um, yeah, just reaching out. It is so great to hear how um, our stories are impacting you, but also um, how many of you um, kind of needed this community to exist. So thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. As always, we want to end the episode with something that has been inspiring us, whether that is a poem or um, spoken word or, or whatever it might be, or some sort of writing. 
Now, as Justin explained last week, this isn't for everyone. And if this is something, a new practice to you, um, we invite you to just um, receive it however you would like to receive it. Truthfully, I'm a little nervous about everyone hearing my story. And so I was going to have a, a different poem and I had this great and grand idea. And then I realized that what I really wanted to share with you was the poem that I read to myself over and over again as I was preparing um, to announce that I was leaving ministry and I wasn't sure what I was going to. So I hope this poem holds meaning for you. It is, again, a poem from John O'Donohue. Apparently, he is one of my favorites, but this is called For the Interim Time. When near the end of day, life has drained out of light, and it is too soon for the mind of night to have darkened things. No place looks like itself. Loss of outline makes everything look strangely in between. Unsure of what has been, what might come. In this wane light, even trees seem groundless. In a while it will be night, but nothing here seems to believe the relief of darkness. You are in this time of interim, where everything seems withheld. The path you took to get here has washed out. The way forward is still concealed from you. The old is not old enough to have died away. The new is still young to be born. You cannot lay claim to anything. In this place of dusk, your eyes are blurred and there is no mirror. Everyone else has lost sight of your heart and you can see nowhere to put your trust. You know you have to make your own way through. As far as you can, hold your confidence. Do not allow confusion to squander this call which is loosening your roots and false ground that you might come free from all you have outgrown. What is being transfigured here in your mind and it is difficult and slow to become new. The more faithfully you can endure here, the more refined your heart will become for your arrival in the new dawn. Again, thank you friends for listening. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.